We're told in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, that very early on Sunday morning, three forlorn followers of Jesus went to his tomb. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and another woman named Salome. They carried aromatic spices, expecting to finish the job of anointing Jesus' body for a proper burial in this resting place in a tomb carved out of a stone hillside. And on the way, they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Because the three of them together would not have the muscle power to do so on their own. But when they got there, the huge stone had already been rolled away. And when they went wide-eyed into the tomb, they met an angel raised, raised in dazzling white-hot holiness who said to them, don't be afraid. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He's not here. He is risen. And ever since, Christians have greeted each other that way on Resurrection Sunday, with one person shouting, Christ is risen, and the others responding, He is risen indeed. Let's do that together now, three times. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Amen. The Apostle Paul describes the consequences of Christ's resurrection this way in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10 from the message. Nothing could be plainer, death defeated, life vindicated in a steady stream of blazing light all through the work of Jesus. That's what we're here to celebrate this morning. Death defeated, life vindicated all through the work of Jesus. You know, in the weeks leading up to Easter, I've been doing a series of messages on the meaning of Christ's death on the cross. How as our substitute, Christ paid the penalty for our sin, carried our sins, and paid the penalty that we deserved. But if the story ended there, if the story ended with Jesus dead on the cross, then it would just be another story of human tragedy. In fact, the story if the story of Jesus ended on Friday... I'd be willing to bet that nobody would have ever have even heard of Jesus. He would have been unceremoniously deposited on the garbage dump of history along with all the rest of the wide-eyed religious prophets. The power of the cross flows from the resurrection. The cross is connected to the open tomb and the, the empty grave. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers That without the resurrection, preaching about the cross is just a waste of time because your sins have not been forgiven. It's not just by dying that Jesus brings salvation. It's by rising from the dead. That's what vindicates his work on the cross. The physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus is proof that he really was the one and only unique Son of God who could do what no one else in the whole universe could do. And when through God's power Jesus came out of the grave, it was was like the dam of sin finally broke, and God's grace and forgiveness and mercy and power could, could, could burst forth and flow unhindered into our hearts, unobstructed into your heart. Because of Jesus, we can connect with the same experience of God's love right now, even though the events we're talking about took place almost 2,000 years ago. That's why the story of Jesus is still being told today. And that's why people can still connect 
with this story, with its, with its sense of drama, all that surrounds the death and resurrection of Jesus. It is a powerful, true story. And one of the things that makes it so memorable is this cast of characters that populate the last week of Christ's earthly life. Many of you know that I like to write, and a few years ago I collaborated with a friend from Chatham to write the screenplay to a pilot episode for a new TV series. And through my friend's contacts, I was able to go to Hollywood and to pitch the series to four different uh, TV producers. Now, obviously, it didn't go well because none of them picked up the show. But it was still a lot of fun to do. And one of the producers that I got to meet was from the USA Network. And they had just begun a new marketing campaign based on the phrase, Characters Welcome. Maybe you've seen that in one of their their ads. Well, here's how one of their marketing VPs described why they chose that phrase. In talking to our viewers and discovering what they love best about the USA Network, we realized there was real connective tissue around the concept of strong, relatable characters. And I like that idea. The characters are the connective tissue. Compelling, often complicated characters. That's what makes you care about the story. And I like that idea because I think it's true as we read the Gospels too. Over the past few weeks, I've read through all the gospel narratives of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, and, and I couldn't help but notice all of these compelling and complicated characters that shape the story. And I've always thought that one good way to get the most out of reading your Bible is to put yourself into the story. To imagine you are one of the characters in what you are reading. You, you put yourself into, into that person's shoes or, or sandals, I guess. And try to understand what's going on from that person's point of view. You have to use your imagination a bit so that you can feel maybe what they were feeling, to figure out what questions might be going through that person's mind, to understand what motivated them to do what they did. You, you put your face in the crowd. So which character would you pick in the crucifixion? Maybe even take it a step further and ask, with whom would you identify most in the events of those four days, from the Thursday night Passover meal to the betrayal in the garden, the trumped-up trial, the beatings, the execution, and then finally the resurrection and his appearances following. Of all the cast of characters, all the participants in all those scenes whose actions and attitudes would most be like yours, do you think? If you had been there, would you be Peter, weeping bitterly in the pre-dawn hours because of the weight of his guilt and his shame over denying that he ever even knew Jesus? Maybe you'd be Simon of, of Cyrene, the innocent bystander who didn't have a clue what was happening but was forced to carry Jesus' cross when Jesus stumbled under its weight. Or would you be one of the disciples who, who ran away, who, who broke under pressure? Or one of the women who followed at a distance, watching? Or how about Mary, the mother of Jesus, who, who stood at the cross and through tear-filled eyes saw her own son die? Or maybe the young disciple John, who very courageously stood at her side? What about the penitent thief, suffering on his own cross, yet who found the strength to cry out to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom, or the, or the tough 
guy, Roman soldier, guarding the cross, whose, whose rough exterior finally cracked after watching Jesus die so that he was moved to say, truly, this man was the Son of God. Where would you put yourself in the story? Each one of these characters would see things from a slightly different angle, would feel different emotions, and would come away with different memories. The part of the drama that got to me was when Jesus was brought before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. You can read about that in Matthew 27, Luke 23, or John 18 and 19. Jesus and Pilate. Since the enemies of Jesus and their religious courts didn't have the power to execute him, they had to appeal to Pontius Pilate. The ancient nation of Israel was under the thumb of Roman rule, and so the power of execution belonged to the Roman governor alone. And Pilate, he didn't hesitate from using it one bit whenever he felt it was necessary. The road leading into Jerusalem was lined with crosses for miles. And what amazed me as I read the story was that Jesus, before Pilate, he was so silent, so silent. In the face of accusations from the chief priests and the elders, standing in chains before the highest-ranking Roman official in the region. This is his one chance to, to escape torture and death. And Pilate asked, do you not hear how many things they testify against you, but still Jesus remains silent. And so we're told that in Matthew 27, 14, that Pilate is completely amazed at Jesus' silence. He is used to people begging for their lives, to people trying to placate him, people trying to, to manipulate him, people trying to use him, but not Jesus. And so Pilate doesn't know what to do. It seems as though Jesus could easily have persuaded Pilate to let him go. I mean, Pilate treats Jesus with a great deal of respect. And Jesus certainly had the, had the verbal acuity to present his case. And plus, Pilate had no affection for the chief priests and the elders. I mean, he knows what they're up to. It's as though Pilate wants to be persuaded. He seems to want to let Jesus go. It's like he's saying, Jesus, help me help you. Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. That's John 19, 10. So why is Jesus so silent? Why not respond to the bogus charges being levied against him? Well, we know that Jesus knows that this is his hour. This is the reason he was born. This is the reason he came into the world. As Ian talked about Thursday night, this is the cup that he is supposed to drink. He was born to die as our substitute, our, our mediator. You and I all know when we're, we all know we're going to die. We don't know how or when, but Jesus knew how, he knew when, and most importantly, he knew why he was going to die. British theologian John Stott says, what dominated Jesus' mind wasn't so much the living of his life, but the giving of his life. In his own words, Jesus said, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. 
The story takes another twist when Pilate tries to help Jesus by taking advantage of a Passover custom in which he pardons one prisoner and sets him free, someone the public wants most to be released. And Pilate offers the crowd a choice between Jesus and this notorious murderer named Barabbas. And while on the judgment seat, Waiting for the response of the crowd, an aide kind of taps Pilate on the shoulder and hands him a message from his wife. She tells him that she's just had a disturbing dream about Jesus and counsels her husband, have nothing to do with that righteous man. I mean, that's just further incentive for Pilate to let Jesus go. And while the governor reflects on his wife's message, the chief priests and their agents, they're out there working the crowd stirring them up, urging people to, to call for Barabbas and not for Jesus. Paul put, or Pilate puts away his wife's note. He stands up and asks, which of these two do you want me to release for you? And all around the mob starts chanting, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. And frustrated, Pilate asks then, what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And the response, crucify. Pilate now seems desperate to find a way to free Jesus. Why, he asks, what evil has he done? But the mob has been worked up into a frenzy, and like a pack of wolves that smells blood, they just start howling louder and louder, crucify him. They're on the verge of riot, and Pilate is starting to sweat. His soldiers are starting to flex their sword hands. This is getting out of control, and he's got to do something, or it's going to be a bloodbath. And so Pilate caves. He gives in. It was the politically expedient thing to do. Matthew 27, 24 tells us he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. And so he's forever remembered for that act of cowardice. And that's when it hit me where I would be in that story. The character that's most like me. The part I would have played if I had been there. I I would have been in the crowd. I would have been one of those shouting for Jesus to be crucified. And in fact, that's where we all would have been in the mob of humanity that called for Jesus' death. That's really who we all should identify with the most. We're, we're only flattering ourselves if we think that we would have been another character. Only fooling ourselves unless you see yourself standing there with the shrieking crowd full of hostility and hatred for the Holy Lamb of God. Because apart from God's grace, that is where we would all still be standing. Until you can put yourself in that crowd, you don't really understand the nature and the depth of your sin. And the necessity of the cross. And then the enormity of God's grace. Think about this with me for a second. As the shouts grew from the crowd, what was it like for Jesus to look out upon all those Many faces, angry faces. I mean, he's, he's the great shepherd who knows us all by name. In his divinity, he could distinguish each and every single person. Each voice that shouted 
was different, and he recognized each one. And in response to those shouts and curses, Jesus yields to the sentence of death. He says to Pilate, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. In love, he lays his life down. And it was for the very people in the crowd who didn't even understand what they were doing, who were caught up in the frenzy of the moment, who didn't understand the consequences of their actions, or maybe even for those who did know, who were prodding the crowd to further hatred and violence, the ones that hated Jesus the most. In love, Jesus laid his life down for them too. The very ones who called for his death. That's why you and I must see ourselves in the crowd to understand that it was for us at our very worst that Jesus died. There's an old poem by Horatius Bonar that expresses it this way. "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the God of Christ. I joined the mockery. Of all the shouting multitude, I feel that I am one, and in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross, the throng, I see mocking the sufferers groan, yet still my voice, it seems to be, as if I mocked alone. When we think on what the Bible teaches about who crucified Jesus, it's not about whether it was the Romans or the Jews or whatever people happened to be there, but that you and I did. And that all humanity collectively, all ethnic groups, all cultures, all people without exception are involved in the crucifixion of Christ. Because Christ died for all of us. Folks, my purpose in placing myself or placing you in the middle of that mob is not to make anyone feel bad. It's not to convince you of your sin, but to convince you of God's grace. Because when you and I are deeply aware of our sin and how much all humanity shares in the rebellion against God's goodness and holiness, only then can we be truly amazed by God's grace. The story of God's self-sacrifice through Jesus Christ is the story with a cross at its center, but not at its end. The plot moves on toward what can only be called the great reversal. When the dead Jesus was raised from the grave, and we're not talking about Jesus fainting or faking his death. We're not talking about Jesus being resuscitated in some cosmic act of of CPR, sort of like Jesus did with Lazarus. We're not talking about reincarnation, but about resurrection where God performed a -a one-of-a-kind miracle by which he stopped the process of decay, decomposition, and corruption, rescued Jesus' soul out of the realm of death, and transformed his body into a new, eternal, physical vehicle for his personality so that he had a new power and immortality never to die again. A resurrection, something that had never happened before. And why is that so important? Again, John Stott puts it this way. By raising Jesus from the dead, God assures us that he approved of what Jesus had done 
on the cross and that what he did was not in vain. On the contrary, his death is the basis on which God is able to forgive all our sin and in resurrection power give us new life. The resurrection validates the death of Jesus Christ. (coughs) The resurrection of Jesus assures us of God's forgiveness today. And so there's another crowd I want to tell you about very briefly. A post-resurrection crowd. It's mentioned only one time by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 6. Let me read. For I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, and after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Jesus stood before a crowd on this side of the cross. We don't know anything about where or when that happened. The event is not recorded for us in any of the Gospels. But there were 500 eyewitnesses gathered all in one place, and Jesus stood before them in his resurrection glory. I imagine some of them were the same ones who stood in the crowd that called for Jesus' death. And they saw their lives transformed by his forgiving grace. His resurrection power. I hope you can place yourself in that crowd today. Because that's where God really wants you to be. Where Jesus wants you to be. Where Christ wants to encounter you. The crowd transformed by the resurrection power of Jesus. You know, all of us came today for different reasons. Some came because it's the traditional thing to do. Others came because a friend or a family member invited you. Some came because you saw a sign and it attracted your attention. It doesn't matter why you think you came here. I don't think you're here by accident. God brought us all here, brought you here, that he could communicate with you, maybe just get us to sit still for 20 minutes so that we could listen and have him say something to us. And this is what I think God wants us to understand today. You matter to me. I understand everything about your life. I know you. I made you. I want to have a relationship with you. I sent my son to die for you, and I want you to know me. You know, your background might be Catholic or Jewish or Protestant or Mormon or Buddhist or Baptist, and God doesn't really care about your background. He wants a relationship with you through faith in Jesus Christ because you matter to God. And he brought you here today to make sure you know that. And that's really what Easter is all about. That's what being a Christian is all about. God knows you. He wants you to know him. And so this Easter, let's respond to him with an open heart and simply say, God, here I am. I want my face in the crowd that's transformed. By Christ's grace. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we want to see you. We want to see you this morning. Not the beaten up Christ with a crown of thorns on his head standing next to Pilate. We want to see you in your resurrection power. So that we have to even turn our eyes away because the brightness is too bright. 
that glory from God the Father would shine all around you and into our hearts today. And we thank you, Lord, just for the enormity of your love. Something we can't possibly even understand, that you would be willing to die for the ones who shouted for your death. And we share in that. Thank you, Jesus, that you came out of the grave for us. And we want to be in the crowd that knows your grace. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.